So what happened? Hey, what happened is we are going live. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you, depending on where you are in the world. Welcome to another edition of Hypnosis Week Live. Whether you're watching this on YouTube, Vimeo, or another video platform, or more likely listening to the audio podcast, I welcome you. Um, if you are on a video channel, you've already got a clue who my guest is, because you can see his face on screen. I'm about to introduce him. He's a gentleman I had the pleasure and privilege to meet in person and believe it, where does time go? It was six, just over 16 years ago in October 2004 when he was running one of his um, multi-layered courses in London, England, and one of the promoters, Kevin James, uh, got me on board to help promote the event, and I went along, and what? An, well, we'll talk about that in a bit, but it was an amazing event, and... Um, Obviously, I've followed his career prior to that and since, and it's taken some amazing turns recently in terms of um, what's going out there. That's going to be in kind of the, the latter part of uh, our interview. He's a gentleman who in America has been known for years as America's favourite hypnotist. To clarify that, the reason being that until... I'm going to say until very recently, because there is someone out there now who's starting to slowly claw away and get more television exposure. But generally speaking, for a good couple of decades, uh, the, if you turned on the telly and saw a hypnotist, whether it was for stage entertainment or therapeutic uh, healing purposes, you would see the gentleman who you see on screen right now, and we'll hear in a few moments. He's got numerous DV DVDs, they are now, but they were video programs back in the day, training programs out there. He's traveled all over the world, as you'll hear over um, the course of this interview. And look, I, I, I want him to tell you more rather than me going through his career history of amazing achievements that are unequaled. Um, so please welcome to the show, the legend that is, Mr. Tom Silver. Hey, Tom. Oh, don't tell me it's frozen at Tom's end. We have frozen at Tom's end. Can we believe this? I'm going to have to re-ring him. Well, there will be another intro. This is the intro, but I'm going to video call him back. So, fingers crossed, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Mr. Tom Silver. Hey, Jonathan, thanks so much for having me on this show. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about hypnosis as well as the outer limits of hypnosis and what could be possible and maybe some of the challenges that we're having in the hypnotism field these days with rogue hypnotists and things like that. Um, as you mentioned, I've been in this field of, of hypnosis or neuroscience, whatever you want to call it, for about 37 years. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. Yes, I was on quite a few television shows in the past and uh, talking about hypnosis, showing demonstrations, some fun, creative stuff, some silly stuff, but also some life changes. So I'm really glad to be here and to talk to the people on your podcast um, and, and give you the real deal about hypnosis. I hold nothing back, just like you. 
Excellent. I'm excited. We're going to get into the real juicy stuff a little later, but just in case, because there will be some people that are going to come across this who are just getting into the field and may not yet have uh, encountered your work. And if you fall in that category, please get yourself on YouTube after this interview and type in Tom Silver. There are tons of clips of Tom on TV shows galore and also stuff that is generally uh, generously shared from training events that you can learn free of charge from as well. Um, but before we get to there, it's the question I ask everyone at the start. It's the obvious one. There was a time when Tom Silver wasn't the world-renowned stage hypnotist, hypnotherapist, mind science guy that you are known to be now. Um, what was your life path that led you to here? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked me that, you know, because I kept, you know, thinking about this and wondering, you know, how did, how did I get into the field of hypnotism? But I can tell you now um, that, that it really came to me after all these years. And it came to me a few years ago. As a child, uh, I, I experienced trauma. I was at an amusement park with my nephew, who was my best friend. We were, we were leaving the amusement park. It was in California, United States. My, my mother and brother were in, ahead of us. We were walking to our automobiles. So there was this people mover thing, a vehicle that has these little cars on it that people are sitting on, which drives people to their cars in the parking lot. Right. So I said to my nephew, I said, hey, let's hop on this vehicle. We'll beat my mother and brother to the car. And I, like a fun game. I was 12 years old. He was 11. So we went to run on this people mover thing. We, I saw it. It was going down, the, down one of the roads to the cars. And as soon as we got to it, I noticed the whole thing was full of people. There was no room to jump anywhere. So I stopped. But my nephew jumped on where the two cars were connected by a chain. It was a truck with a car full of people sitting on, sitting, and they were all facing outside in like a circle, another little chain, and another car. So he jumped on where they connected together. And, and I stopped, and I'm watching, and, and, this, and this kid just fell right down in between the cars. He's being crushed to death. Uh, I'm watching my nephew, my best friend, lives right next to me, my, my half-brother's son, my dad's grandson, being freaking crushed to death and dragged. I'm screaming and yelling, stop, stop, and I'm crying, and all this stuff's going on in my mind. Yeah. It, it seemed like forever, but maybe the, maybe the car went 100 or 200 yards. The truck finally stops. Everyone gets off the trucks. All these people, it must have been like 100 people on these things. They, they, they lifted this thing on the upside uh, over, and there was my nephew in a pool of blood, shaking. You know, his body, like his nerves were just doing this. And I'm seeing this, and I'm, I'm, I got screwed up, man. I got traumatized. Um, yeah. It was a form of PTSD or whatever. I couldn't talk about it for years. And, and I think that that was influenced me in my later life to get into hypnotism. Now, I, when I grew up, uh, I was a musician. I played saxophones and flutes, and I was in rock bands all over the place. And then I worked in the record business, and I worked for a lot of record companies, including Crystal's Records. You can still hear me, right, Jonathan? Yeah, yeah, of course I can. Okay. So I worked for Crystal's Records. So I worked with a lot of English acts, man. Um, Jethro Tull, um, Billy Idol, um, Ultravox. Um, just all these different bands, uh, rock bands and, and everything like that. So 
in between record companies, because I worked for two record companies in the 80s. So uh, when I got laid off from the first record company in 1985, my brother told me there was an opening for a cameraman, a guy to operate the camera in a hypnotism school. And when he said hypnotism, Oh, man, my, my mind just started going wild. You know how, how people are when you think of hypnosis. God, you're going to be able to learn how to put people into hypnosis. You know, so I worked at this school. It was called HMI, the Hypnosis Motivation Institute. I worked with a guy named John Kappas, who was the founder. Now his son, George, runs the organization. I have my own feelings and beliefs about these organizations. But I won't get into them right yet. But anyway, for a year, I was a camera guy. I was, I was looking through the camera. I was watching these hypnosis teachers who had life practices. They weren't some someone that went to a training course and now they're teaching hypnotism with no life practice. What we see these days, these goose, these textbook trainers, these guys were people that had walked the walk. They had life hypnotherapy practices for 20 and 30 years. So I'm watching them do these therapies and I'm getting audience reaction, but I'm watching these case studies. After a year of getting $10 an hour credit, after a year, I had enough credits to go through the school. I went through the school uh, for a year, and then I started doing internship for two or three years, had an office there. Uh, then uh, I started working with doing therapy in my own home, but that's when I started changing and creating new methods, because what I learned was good, but it was basic stuff. It was elementary methods of hypnosis little bits of everything but really not the true essence of, of what i got to learn through experience so that's how i got into hypnosis and i really think my childhood trauma uh made it once i got over it and used used methods on myself i was able to understand that's probably why i got in this field because no one helped me when, when this trauma occurred, no one talked about it. The family never talked about it. And, and here I'm the one who witnessed it. And I was stuck with this trauma in my mind. And luckily, I, I, it, when I grew up, I used the same techniques on myself to be able to talk about it and to lower it. You never really get over, you know, very major traumatic events. But you learn how to deal with it, to live with it, and to move on from it. Okay, that's it. Now... Because obviously, I, I, this isn't through research. I've been on your calls. Um, I've, I've known about you for years. So I know I, for that, I'm saying that for the benefit of the viewers and the listeners. You'll think, oh, he's done a lot of research. No, it was dead easy, this one, because I know all about Tom to a degree. At some point, you got closely involved with um, the late legend, Armand McGill. Yeah. Well, here's what happened. Thanks for asking about this, Jonathan. So I went through the hypnotism school. I got out of the school. I started developing my own methods and then also teaching some courses in that school. Then I started getting radio shows. I would call and I tried to get as, I tried to get on wherever I could. Now, don't forget back in the mid to late 80s, we weren't saturated with everybody calling themselves a hypnotist or a hypnotherapist or a master or doctor of hypnosis. The internet wasn't around back then. So I called radio stations and I got on radio shows, even, even going to stations where people were going to bury me, going to put me in the class of magic or, or it's bullshit or psychic or whatever. Uh, and I proved myself because I believed I could do it. I think if, I, if you believe in something strong enough, 
that's a catalyst to be able to do it. But you also have to have an ability. So um, I got called by an agent. I met, I met an agent in Hollywood. He brought this guy in named Xu Ming from Taiwan. And Xu Ming was looking all around for a hypnotist for two years. I don't know if you remember Pat Collins. You remember Pat Collins? The, the hypnotist? Yeah, the first. Well, I don't know if she, was, if she wasn't the first, but she was the first famous female hypnotist that also sang, didn't she? Absolutely. She had a club called the Celebrity Club on Hollywood, on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, California. That club was booked every night for 10 years, and she taught self-hypnosis, and um, she was really a major celebrity. Hung with all the movie stars, did TV and everything else. So anyway, um, this agent meets with me, and he says, I want to bring you to Taiwan to be the first hypnotist to bring hypnosis, the science of hypnosis, to the Asian people. And he said, I can't promise you anything. He offered me 1500 bucks a week salary, like a weekly salary. I signed a five-year contract. He said, I can't promise you anything except you're going to become famous. And, and if you do it right, you're going to be opening the doors of hypnosis uh, to Asia. So I went and did it. And so I went there in 1994. Within, I went back twice in 1994, cracked the code of translingual hypnosis hypnotizing people through an interpreter in Mandarin Chinese, a foreign language. And then I appeared on TV shows. I hypnotized all the famous female and male celebrities on a weekly show. I had a half-hour segment on a two-hour weekly show called Super Sunday. Oh, and, and I'd talk about hypnosis. People in the audience would ask questions. And then I'd do stuff. I would do past life regression, you know, like reincarnation stuff. I would... I would have someone think they're Michael Jackson or see their their their, their most uh, favorite dead relative in the audience. I just did all kinds of different things that they wanted me to do. And then I also talked about hypnosis. And then I set a world's record in February of 1995, hypnotizing 3,800 uh, Chinese people in a world's record show all at the same time through an interpreter. It was really, it was pretty fascinating stuff. Um, and... And then when I went back home, I contacted a friend of mine, a female stage hypnotist named Desiree. She lived in San Diego, and she said she had a manuscript from Orman McGill, a, 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 a book that he never released, a manuscript. Oh. And I thought Orman McGill was dead. I mean, when I was learning to do stage hypnosis, and I was working with an empty couch and empty chairs and pretending there were people, I was watching Orman McGill videos. I was inspired by Orman McGill because I thought he was really fantastic, um, a living legend. There was a guy named Sam Vine from Canada, so I'd watch his shows. Uh, as you know, Gil Bourne was doing stage hypnosis mm -hmm. and things like that. So I, I said to her, God, I said, man, I sure wish I would have gotten to know Orman McGill. She goes, he's alive. He lives in Palo Alto, California. So I said, so I wrote him a letter. I said, Orman, my name's Tom Silver. You don't know me. I'm doing work in Asia. I'm introducing the Asian culture to hypnotism. Can we communicate? Next thing you know, he calls me on the phone. We become best pals, and I hung with him for 10 years. We did, we did stuff together. We worked on, on, on sound frequencies. Uh, we did shows together. Um, I traveled with him to the National Guild. I spent time with him at his home, his retirement home that he lived on. And, and I got to learn from his philosophy, from who he was as a person, because he was in hypnotism for like 40 years, man, mm. 50 years. He was a magician before that. 
So he embraced me like kind of like his son. And he was like, you know, my father. My dad died when I was a teenager. And so he was like my best friend, my father, my my educator of the knowledge of hypnosis. And it and it was fantastic. Cause as you know, Orman McGill is a legend in the field of hypnotism. Yeah. And I was so lucky to have this relationship. We'd sit together and talk about things and we I videotape him. So I videotape him for hours just so I can watch him later on. Uh, he did some hypnotherapy on me. He helped remove some of that trauma for me. And uh, we wrote some books together. So uh, I miss him. I sure wish he was here. But he was actually probably the nicest guy, the nicest person, uh, enlightened person I'd ever met. I met Orman once, very briefly, at a Supreme Magic Convention organized by, it's shut down now, but it was called the Supreme Magic Company that was here, used to be in Biddeford in Devon in England. But they bought on um, one day magic conventions at the time, and it was in the late, mid to late 80s. A Supreme, I think it was at Lewisham, but Orman was there as a guest and doing a lecture on mentalism. It wasn't on hypnosis but he was asked and he was asked about obviously about hypnosis because there were people at the convention selling the encyclopedia is you know the the tomb that everyone knows and when asked by the magicians is stage hypnosis complete nonsense his blatant answer was which i didn't realize the gravity of his answer at the time because I wasn't involved in hypnosis then. I was still doing magic. He said, uh, no stage hypnotist has ever hypnotized anyone. It's all just manipulating them. And I wish I'd at the time read his book, because I didn't. I hadn't at that time. But then when I read the book later, I was somewhat confused, because if you just read the book, you would never, ever expect him to give that answer. Because obviously the book is very much, it's completely, totally, it's all hypnosis, it's all genuine. Yeah, there is one chapter in there, the Dr. Q Hypnotic Act, but it's very, very much saying that they're two different things. Whereas at a magic convention, his answer was, yeah, 99% of it's um, having the brass balls and just manipulating them and giving them the five minutes of fame. I got to tell you a story. Um, I was, Orman came to LA and he was doing a big, um, a, a all day lecture at the Gilboyne Institute in Glendale, California. So I, I was his sound guy and hooked him up to a wireless sound system. It was so cool seeing Orman McGill wearing a headset with wireless. So I was doing a show that night at a corporation, a company, uh, holiday event. So Orman asked if he can come with me to the show. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. I'm thinking, wow, this is great. Orman McGill's coming to see me do a stage hypnosis show. And Orman McGill was the stage hypnotist. Yeah. That's what he did around the world, around the world. And so I do the show. Now, back then, I was really particular. If I didn't think you were really hypnotized, you know, like people talk about this trance and all that other garbage stuff. If I didn't think you were really hypnotized, I'd get you off the show. In other words, if I thought you were conscious at any degree and you weren't in a waking sonambulist state, let's talk about sonambulism, folks. Some of you might not know that word. 
Synambulism is a is almost a state where your conscious mind, like this light switch, has been shut off. But at, where you experience amnesia, memory loss, and, and a few people can go into that naturally, maybe artificially with hypnosis. But anyway, I would start with 10 or 20 people. And anytime I thought somebody was a little conscious, say they just scratched their head or did something, I'd get them off the show. Needless to say, I'd wind up with two, one, two, three, maybe four people in my show because if I didn't think that, if I thought that they weren't really hypnotized, what I thought hypnosis was, yeah. I'd get rid of them. And so I did the show and it was a good show. It was real fun, but I got rid of 90% of the people. So at the end of the show, Orman says to me, he goes, Tom, your show is great, but why'd you get rid of everybody? And I said, well, that's how I do it. I, if I don't think you're really hypnotized, then, then I eliminate you from the show. And he said to me, this is what he said. He said, were they participating in your show when you told them to do something? Did they do it? And I said, yeah. He goes, were they having fun doing creative things? And I said, yeah. He says, were they belittling or trying to make a fool of you in the show? You know, and you and you know that sometimes the stage mm -hmm. hypnotist turns their head and someone on stage is doing this or doing something stupid and everyone's laughing, but you don't know why. That's why some stage hypnotists have, have a spot, someone there watching these subjects to make sure they're not going to make a fool out of the hypnotist. And, and he says, was anyone trying to embarrass you or make you look foolish? I said, no. He goes, keep them in. And I said, what? He goes, keep them in. He goes, who are you to determine who's hypnotized or who's not? He goes, if they're having fun and they're participating, he goes, that's all it's about. And, and I thought about it because you have different experiences with these subjects. You might have that the real hypnotic person that maybe you've hypnotized them where they just go into hypnosis automatically, you know, the natural synambulist, we can call them. You might also have the person where the suggestions of the hypnotist has influenced them. I love this word. I was thinking about this word today. Has influenced them so much that the influence is stronger than the resistance not to do it. Because probably they know if they don't do it, they're going to get off the show and they're not going to be one of the stars. Then you have the person that might have never gotten a chance to feel important or feel like a movie star or a celebrity. So you get that person that for once gets to stand up and do things creative without those fears. Um, and, and it's a great positive experience for them. So and then you just have the faker, the overtop person that's trying to be the one that stands out. Those are the ones you got to get rid of, the one that's so over the top that they're dangerous for everybody else. Um, but after that show and after Armin said, leave them in, man, I left them all in. Even if I thought they were conscious, guess what? Just because someone's conscious doesn't mean they're not influenced. Mm. See, that's that's the problem that we have, Jonathan, is that word hypnosis or that hypnotist thinking, I'm hypnotizing you. I'm doing something to you. You know, well, I'm the powerful. Huh? I couldn't agree more. And we're definitely going to go down that route a little bit later on when we're getting to kill the hypnotist because that is so vitally important to, to all that stuff without a doubt um so yeah just we we mentioned dorm and stage a little bit more on stage and we'll segue into therapy before we get to kill the hypnotist so 
telly stuff, you've done television stuff that's entertainment and stuff that's the therapeutic side. We'll just concentrate yes. on the, the, the stage stuff at the minute, as it were, the entertainment side of it. Okay. Um, anything I say, if you look at hypnosisweek.com, you'll see this is consistently my standpoint. I'm not, sometimes I play devil's advocate, but with this right now, it's consistently my viewpoint that the easiest place on the planet to hypnotize somebody for entertainment purposes is someone who knows they're going to be on a TV show. A trained chimpanzee could do it. There's no skill required other than no, other than the skill of being a showman and an entertainer, which is a massive talent in itself. I mean, hypnotically wise, the television camera does the job for you. It's my standpoint. What's your thoughts on that? Well, look at it this. Look at it this way, man. You know, because I do a lot of internet. What are you going to say? I wasn't going to say anything. I'm letting you answer. Okay. Uh, you look at it this way. When when a camera is on you, or you're watching TV or whatever, or you're in an environment where all these technical people are running around, you have been influenced. So you are already in a suggestible type of state. Plus, think about the computer right now. As I'm watching you, I'm going in, in and out of different areas of consciousness. I'm going into what you might want to consider hypnosis. So a screen hypnotizes us. When we watch TV, we're, we're going into that, that suggestible state. You know, we are. We, we, when we're watching a movie and we're influenced by the movie, we're emotionally attached to the influences of the movie. So people are so used to being influenced by TV or, or a computer, watching a computer or watching a movie. And when, when you're doing a TV show, this is the reality of it. Number one, I've already created expectation. The fact that I'm going on TV show, they're already expecting that this guy's pretty good, right? They're already expecting me to get the job done. The, from, from the network to the technical people, to the person I'm hypnotizing, because maybe they've already seen me on TV. It's built up my credibility. And, and you know, as a state show, all you gotta do is take the most uh, suggestible person, I, I can say receptive, but the person that's gonna follow your, your, your delivery, gonna execute your, your, your setup, and if, you can, and if you drop them down as the first person, everyone else will fall in line. Because what they see, they expect to happen to them. And even if they're not hypnotized, they will still go along with it. They will still participate. They will still act and pretend as if. But the television shows I did, this is interesting. Because they had me do a lot of stuff, man, from, from um, uh, uh, obsessive compulsive disorders to, to people that had real strong ab reactions and phobias and fears of heights. Of, of insects and bugs, of driving down hills, of all these different things. Um, and I was able to get the job done, and that's because I preconditioned them. I worked with them prior to the show. I, I was able to influence them um, to respond correctly to certain tests or challenges I gave them. But then when I went to do the TV show, I left it raw. I left it real. Because if I failed, I didn't even care. I didn't want to fail. 
But if I failed and I had what Orma would call egg on your face, I, I, I was made a fool of or whatever, it'd make more people believe that hypnosis is real because, you know, you're telling them to cluck like a chicken or whatever or bark like a dog or whatever, whatever that the bullshit stuff is. Guess what? People will do it because they're on TV. But when you're dealing with someone that really has a psychological panic disorder or phobia, anything can happen uh, when you do your technique and process. It might work and it might not work. And I've always kept it real like that and raw like that. And I'll never forget the second TV show I ever did. I had, they wanted me to have a lady eat some beets and think they tasted like peaches and the lady hated beets. Mm-hmm. So I hypnotize her. I got a video of it, you know, and I'm telling you. So I tell her, the moment you're going to open your eyes, you're going to see a bowl of, of peaches. You're going to take a peach. It's going to taste wonderful. So I say, open your eyes. What do you see? And she looks at the bowl. She goes, beets. She saw beets. She goes, I hate beets. Everyone's laughing. They're cracking up. I'm turning red. You see me turning red. I'm on TV, you know, and 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 it didn't work. But I still went on, gave her the suggestions that she's going to love eating beets, you know, uh, did a little demonstration of an arm stuck, a rigidity deal, ended the segment. She looked at me. She goes, I hate beets. Everyone's laughing at me. I'm like the fool. Next thing you know, they put a bowl of beets out in front of her and she's eating these beets and she's going, oh, I really like the taste of them. You know, these taste great and she's eating them and eating them. So somehow she was influenced into do, eating do, the beets and watching the beets. What you just described there, and I am playing devil's advocate here a little bit, do you think that the kind of feeling of rejection uh, or psychological pain she may have suddenly felt by being, feeling, because the phrase you used was she said, I, I, I being, I'm being laughed at for not liking them, was the motivating factor to, I'm going to prove those people who laughed at me wrong to then do it, but then because there was already the suggestion there that you put in, that made it easier for her, at which point it amplifies that it's okay to eat them, and she's kind of inwardly become the winner and got one over on the audience who laughed at her. Well, the funny thing is they weren't laughing at her, they were all laughing at me. They were laughing at the... Yeah, but her perception might have been that... Her perception might have been that it was her getting laughed at as well. Well, and and that could be, but when I was there watching her, she really was enjoying the beats. So maybe, maybe instead of thinking I I hate beats and being programmed to hate beats as a kid, maybe she tried it and tasted it and for some reason actually liked it. I mean, how many times did your parents tell you to finish your vegetables or eat your broccoli and you hated that crap? And as an adult, you never ate it because you you thought you hated it. But the other hand, Maybe she was trying. I don't think she was eating the beets to make me look good at all. I think she actually, when she went and ate the beets personally, because I was right there. I personally think for the first time she realized she really does like the taste of them. They're not as bad as what she thought they were going to be. Yeah, and of course, uh, when we grow up as adults, things taste different than they did anyway, don't they? Yeah, and, and I remember one time, Egg Fu Young, I used to hate Egg Fu Young. Something happened in a, in a Chinese restaurant. Maybe I got sick, but I hated it. So for 20 years, I never ate that, that stuff. And then one time as an adult, I ordered it and tasted it, and I thought, wow, that tastes really good. So if we, if we learn to hate something or not like something, 
it doesn't mean that we truly don't like it. We've been programmed or conditioned by being forced to eat it to maybe not like it. But the funny thing was that she, my suggestion, she didn't follow through with my suggestion. She was on TV. She's a famous celebrity. She was married to John DeLorean that created the automobile, the DeLorean, a wealthy millionaire lady, a high flutin' lady. And, um, and I told her she was going to see peaches. I was creating what was called an illusion. You know about that. Some people can go into such a, 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 a suggestible state that possibly what you're suggesting they're seeing, they're actually seeing or imagining themselves see it. But it didn't work on her. So this was an early TV show where I thought I failed, but at least at the end, she saved me. Maybe she did it on purpose to make me feel better. I don't know. All I know is it was good TV, yeah. and I was glad to be through with that thing, man, because I, I felt embarrassed. We nearly segued, well, we did segue slightly into therapy, but we'll just pull back to finish off on stage, and I'm going to throw street hypnosis in, because I remember back in um, October 2004 when I was up in London uh, at your course, which we're going to get into when we get into therapy, the, uh, during one of the breaks, you stuck on, because you had it on your um, laptop, you stuck on for me to watch you, what can only be described in modern day terms as your street hypnosis TV show that you'd done. Yeah. Uh, that had gone out in America, um, as I remember correctly, about two or three years before Paul McKenna He'd already done a TV show in England that was stage hypnosis in the studio, but then he suddenly did a one-off thing on Channel 4 in England that was street hypnosis. And some may possibly come to the conclusion that the odd idea was he used was inspired from your street hypnosis TV show. Well, well absolutely. Absolutely. So how did that come about, and what's the difference for the viewers and listeners, in your opinion, from doing hypnosis um, more in the street, normal, everyday environments than doing it on the strict stage psychological platform? Well, this is interesting. Let me tell you how I got the gig. So I'm doing this radio show, uh, a, a, a weekly radio show. It's called K-Rock. It's in Southern California. But I've also done all these stage hypnosis shows, not just in stages, but in people's homes, living room hypnosis, all of that stuff. And I always thought, well, wouldn't it be great to have a TV show where the hypnotist is not on a stage? Think about the word stage, stage hypnosis. The word staged itself means set up, fake, it's staged. So just by saying stage hypnosis, you're almost giving the word hypnosis, stage hypnosis, as something that's faked, that it's set up, it's set up. So I, 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 um, I was doing this radio show and I get a call from a TV producer, Bruce Nash. He's the one who did Magician's Secret Revealed. Yes. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. So Bruce Nash, I mean, he was scared when he was doing that show. The, 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 hit the, the magician guy's life was threatened. Nash's life was threatened. All these magicians were pissed off because they're showing the behind-the-scenes things of these illusions and all this other stuff. I don't know if they did four or five shows. But anyway, so Nash calls me, and I said, hey, man, I said, 
I want to pitch you on a TV show where the hypnotist is not in a in a studio, but where we go out to real places to hypnotize people. And so we loved the idea. So I met with him. I put together a little demo video of some of my living room hypnosis stuff because to me the living room stuff was is was so much different than on on a stage in an auditorium. And so he said, "This is a great idea." I told him some ideas. I gave him some bits in the supermarket, bowling alley, on the beach. I, I wrote all these ideas out. So then he said, sets up a meeting with CBS Television. So I'm meeting with the CBS president named Les Moonves. Now Les Moonves was the head CEO of CBS Television for many years until he got kicked off with the sexual predator stuff. Then they kicked him off, you know. But anyway. So I go, I, I'm getting ready to go in and meet Les Moonves. Now, Bruce Nash is working with a guy named Ted Harbour. Ted is the president of, he was the ex-president of ABC television. Currently, I think he's the president of the E! Channel or something like that. But Ted Harbour, I'm sitting in a room getting ready to go up to show Les Moonves these videos. And Ted says to me, he goes, Tom, why don't you try to hypnotize me? Because if you can have me do something creative or, or funny he goes it might help to sell the show because les and me are best friends we've known each other and we've worked on projects for years so i said okay ted let me do something so i did a shock induction now there's many different ways to hypnotize people as you know but i like the way of unexpectedly you know creating trauma overstimulating the nervous system and having someone escape like the flight mechanism like i like uh, the fight and flight if I can create create is is enough um, physical and visual or emotional stimulation, you can call it fear or anxiety, whatever the hell you want to call it. And if I can jolt the body, maybe I can have someone surrender and escape, drop down into hypnosis. And so, and and you know, we were teaching those shock inductions in England. Yeah. They thought I was going to put you into electricity and electrocute you. That's a good way of killing somebody, but I'm not sure if it'll turn them into a subject. Um, uh, but anyway, so I threw him down. He told me before he loves Frank Sinatra. That so I, I, I hypnotized him and I said, on the count of three, uh, I'm 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 your biggest fan. I run your fan club. You're Frank Sinatra. You'll open your eyes. You're Frank Sinatra in every way. You're gonna sing your favorite song, Frank. One, two, three. He sits up in his chair. Now, don't forget, it's just me and him in the room. So it's not as though he's in front of a bunch of people ready to fake it and act it and pretend. So all of a sudden, I'm watching him. I'm watching to see him break character or to do something that I thought was conscious. And all of a sudden, he's like talking like Frank Sinatra. He's singing this song to me, and he's looking into my eyes, and I'm watching him. And I'm thinking, damn, this guy is in some altered state, man. This is the real deal. I'm watching him, and he really thinks he's Frank Sinatra. He's not laughing or cracking up. He's serious. He's sincere. He's singing this song night and day, this standard. So I said, oh, man, this is cool. So then I say, Frank, thanks a lot. Nice to meet you. And I threw him back down. I said, when I count to three, you'll open your eyes. And, and I created, I, I triggered amnesia. How do I know it was amnesia? I don't know. I, I can't go into guy's mind. But I, I, I wanted to make sure I, my best that he didn't remember anything. I gave him what's called a post-hypnotic suggestion. Do you want to explain to the people what a post-hypnotic suggestion is? Post as in afterwards. So hypnotic as in the state, if you believe in that. So it happens something, you tell them while they're hypnotized, and then it happens afterwards when they're 
no longer apparently hypnotised or the eyes open. So it's paused afterwards. Right. So I'm setting a trigger, really, like I did on Brainwashed. I'm setting a trigger. So I set the trigger that uh, the very next time I just shake your hand and look in your eyes or touch on the forehead, you'll collapse, go right into hypnosis instantly. So, so I took him out of hypnosis, and he says to me, that I'm watching him, he goes, so was I any good? He really didn't remember. You know, people do experience, some people experience what I might call spontaneous somnambulism. It's a sleepwalk state, kind of unconscious state. And maybe it's just the wiring of their brain. Maybe they're just wired that way, which could be a, which could be a dangerous way to be, um, I think, at certain times. So anyway, I said, well, I don't know. We'll go up and see. But he truly asked me, and he was confused. He said, was I okay? And I said, I, I don't know. So we went upstairs. We're having the meeting with Les Moonves and all these, all his VPs, all the, the stooges, the yes men, the yes women, you know. When you're dealing with a high-powered TV guy or movie guy, you got all these people that are like they're puppets. They'll say anything and do anything because they want to pamper the guy's ego or make him feel good or keep their job. I, I don't know. It's it's a whole big weird game. So I show them the videos and they're watching the street, the, the living room hypnosis stuff. And so then all of a sudden, I look at Ted Harbert and I say, hey, Ted, I grab his hand. I drop him down. He collapses on my lap. He's like, you know, he's like, you know, he's heavy. I can feel him. He's real heavy. So so everyone's looking and they're like confused. They don't know what to believe. Is it bullshit? Is it real? You know, they don't know what to believe, you know. And and so then I I, I, I do the Frank Sinatra thing. But I turn Les Moonves, his best friend, into the the the, the guy who runs his fan club. This is the head of your fan club. And when I count to three, you're going to open your eyes. You're Frank Sinatra. You're going to sing your favorite song to this guy because this is the head of your fan club. So I go, one, two, three, eyes open. He sits up, and I don't know what's going to happen. Shit, I don't know. So I'm just watching. All of a sudden, he looks at Les Moonves, and he starts singing night and day this song. And he's looking into his eyes like, like, like he's in love with the guy or something. you know. And then Les Moonves is making faces and looking at him. But this guy's not breaking character. Frank Sinatra is staying as Frank Sinatra, you know. Um, so then I, at the end, you know, I, I drop him back down in hypnosis and I turn him into Bill Clinton. And I don't know what's going to happen. I say, you're Bill Clinton. You just, you're going to come on. You're, you're going to talk about what happened with you with this girl that you were touching her body in some, some hotel room, you know, and you're going to try to explain why you did all that stuff. So I, I, I go, one, two, three, eyes open. So now he's talking like Bill Clinton. Hi, this is Bill Clinton. I didn't really mean to be touching her. You know, my hand went up there, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't really mean. So, like, he's saying all this stuff. So I drop him back down. Then I say to Moonves, I said, hey, if you want, I'll leave this sucker as, as Bill Clinton. The whole day, he will stay as Bill Clinton, and, and he can walk around and talk to everyone in your whole, you know, 20-story, you know, CBS building if you want. I said, I'll keep him as Bill Clinton if you want. And he goes, no, 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 we've seen enough. So I take him out of hypnosis. The guy comes out of hypnosis, and he goes, um, you know, so what did I do? And, you know, and then we ended the meeting. Three hours later, I get a call from Les Moonves, I mean, from Bruce Nash, saying, Les wants to show you sold the show. Now, the CBS TV show I did was a reality street show in 1998, April. The year before that, Paul McKenna did an ABC television show special, but everything was done on the stage. He had a game mm -hmm. show where someone couldn't, 
for $10,000 couldn't come up with, with the number eight, no matter what, you know, all this typical stage hypnosis bits. So he did that show, uh, the ABC special in 97 on a stage. I did the very first street hypnotism show ever done in the history of hypnosis. And so I would actually say, and I'm going to take credit that I was the first freaking stage hypnotist because I did it in the beach, in a bowling alley, in a supermarket, um, in a restaurant, in a pet store. And then all of a sudden later on, the big buzz of stage hypnosis, all these stage hypnotists. And I'll tell you one thing, when you watch these stage hypnosis videos on, on YouTube or whatever, I would say probably 98, 98, 99, or 100% of them is bullshit and fake. And it's really easy for someone to fake somebody and have someone pretend they're hypnotized. You know that, and I know that. But the general public watching it, they're amazed. Wow, look at this guy. He, someone's walking behind him. He jumps up in the air and then jumps back down, and they fall down onto the ground in the hypnosis. So I, I think that we see a lot of stuff that we think is real, and I think a lot of it is all fake and bullshit myself. A lot of the stuff on social media, yeah, and even the stuff that is real, depending on what context you want to put it in, a lot of it is bloody dangerous. There's videos out there where they're, they're you know, hypnotising people, where they're stood on the sidewalk, they call it in America, pavement, we call it here, and they're right near the edge, and there's cars going past, and they're not even, like, putting an arm behind them, just in case the person, you know, it's health and safety on a lot of those videos doesn't even come into it. Hey, did you know that I, I worked with two lawyers to bust two stage hypnotists who injured people? One guy was doing Marshall Silver's show at Harris Hotel. Marshall Silver used to be the big stage hypnotist in Las Vegas. Yeah. Apparently, Marshall, Marshall had some substance abuse problems where he would, like, uh, I, won't, I don't know if it was alcoholism or drugs or whatever. But this guy, this guy named Tom, his first name is, who studied some of my stage hypnosis videos was doing Marshall Silver's show. So at one point, someone jumped off the stage and broke their ankle. So I was being called by the lawyer of, of this hypnotist that was representing this hypnotist in Harris Hotel, Harris Casino. They yeah. wanted me as the witness that the hypnotist didn't do anything wrong. But when I watched and reviewed the videos, I saw the hypnotist did something wrong. He worded the suggestion incorrectly, and the person did exactly what he told him to do. When he said Harris, the person jumped off his chair and said, I love Harris. He goes, you're going to jump off the stage, down the stairs, go run to the back of the room, come back up the stairs, sit back down on your chair and go to sleep, go back into hypnosis or go to sleep, whatever he said. Mm -hmm. But he told him he's going to jump off the stage. You're going to, you're going to, jump, off the, you're going to jump off the stage, go down the stairs. The guy jumped off the stage. So the comp the real the lawyers that that were going to bring me into court in front of a jury, and they were paying me to analyze the footage. I was going to go against them and prove that that hypnotist was reckless, because I already got paid, and I don't care. Mm -hmm. I'm you know I'm not going to play the goddamn game. If you're reckless, you're goddamn reckless. You know there used to be a stage hypnotist named. Um, uh, what was his name? He was doing Universal Studios. Lachlan. Lachlan, the X-rated hypnotist. And so I wound up doing shows at Universal Studios after him. But Lachlan was doing that body rigidity. You know, where they put they put your feet on a chair and your, your yeah, head Yeah, full body catalepsy. 
Yeah, the catalepsy. So anyway, he was he stood it on a woman's uh, stomach who had severe back problems. She fell. She cracked her back. It was a major lawsuit for the restaurant Tony Roma's. Uh, he, he he stopped doing shows out there. But there's a lot of times that that these hypnotists actually do reckless things. I I, I was a, a representative for a lawyer for a, a young man who cracked his back and 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 got a some kind of crack in his neck and a stage hypnosis show from a, a girl i think she was called uh uh diana i don't remember what her stage name was but she was having people on stage thinking they're going to the bathroom on stage and getting them to go to the bathroom on stage and thinking that they smell this awful thing and they're going to throw up or she's stabbing some doll and they're screaming and yelling and i mean she's doing all this weird stuff you know that she thought was funny and then she turned them into these these metalhead rock people and this guy smashes this guy hits him super hard he wasn't hypnotized you know that smacks the guy real hard the guy hits his head on a chair falls down onto the stage and she came up to him and she was laughing at him oh wow he sure took it hard and then went on with the show without consideration that this guy might have been hurt by some freaking aggressive perpetrator on stage so I worked with the lawyers again uh, because no one was going to compensate him for his injuries to help him out. And what we saw and what I documented showed that it was a very dangerous. She set a dangerous environment up on stage that could have injured anybody on that stage. Mm. And, and whether it's real or whether it's fake, I don't care. When you got somebody that's aggressive and wants to get his anger out by beating somebody up and hitting them, whether he's hypnotized or not, that's uncalled for. You know what I mean? You know, exactly. And sadly, there's way too many people out there. I was gonna, I'm not even going to say new kids on the block because there's some people have been in this business for years who, frankly, it amazes me. The lack of attention of detail to health and safety and the, the, the basic duty of care of making sure the volunteers are, are, are safe. Well, you know, I missed the last part of what you said, Jonathan. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, I'm amazed amazed that there's even people that have been in the business for years that I've seen vid videos you can see on YouTube and you just think how can you have such disregard for what is arguably just common sense health and safety hey you know I, I was invited to the NGH con I was I was invited to the NGH convention with Norman McGill as his guest in, in I don't know 2002 or three or something so I was I was going to be one of the people to do a stage hypnosis show. So I went to do the sound check prior to the evening event. Yeah. And I look at the stage and it's a total unsafe stage. It's, it's narrow. Um, there's, it's not against the wall. So a chair can fall back. Someone can fall back and hit their head or fall off the stage. And so I said to these guys, I won't say the guy's last name. He's a stage hypnotist, teaches a lot of stage stuff is, First name was Jerry, but I won't say his name. He's one of the good old boys at the NGH. He's been part of that for years. His son's also a hypnotist. So I say to him and some other guy, I say, you got to change the stage. It's not safe. 
I said, it's too narrow. It's not against the wall. Um, it, you know, the way it's set up, if someone stands up and walks two steps forward, they're going to fall off the stage. They might hit their head or hurt themselves. You know what they said to me? You know, because I'm some, you know, young guy to them. They're, they're the big masters of stage hypnosis. No, we know what we're doing. We're not going to change it for you any or anybody. Guess what? People fell off that stage. People got hurt. And I get a call from Jerry and and the, the guy who runs NGA, National Guild of Hypnotists. First name is Dwight. I get a call from both of them that this girl wants to sue them and wants to sue me because she fell off the stage and got hurt. Number one, she was she purposely fell off that stage because she wanted to sue somebody. She and and you know most people are not really hypnotized. They're just going along with it. You know that, yeah. or they're just having fun or participating. They're just influenced to some degree um, to participate. So and then after the show. I was watching her. She was getting drunk and picking up guys at the convention, wanting to get take some guy back to her hotel room. But the next week, I'm getting called from these two guys from NGH, two big big people, saying she's gonna she wants to sue us. She wants all this money. I said I'm not paying anything. I said she knew exactly what she was doing. She was setting you guys up. I said that's why I got rid of her halfway through the show because I could see she was she had some motive set up with all these people watching all mm. these witnesses hypnotist witnesses so next so then they get mad at me next week they call me and say she doesn't want to sue us now she wants to be certified through the ngh she wants a certification through the ngh so 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 you know so i said oh that's up to you guys i don't you know i don't belong to your organization i was yeah. just invited by Armin as a guest and then next thing she you know she just disappears but it just shows you, you know, that, hey, if I wanted to sue somebody and create a lawsuit, I'll go, to, I'll go on to a stage show in front of people at Universal Studios or Disneyland or Osprey Farm, and I can fall. Maybe if I break my ankle, maybe I can get 100000 bucks. you know? So I'm surprised more people aren't sued you know, I'm in stage hypnosis shows, aren't I think, you? I think, to be honest, I know in England, I've... I've been consulted uh, a lot of times as well over here in England by lawyers uh, in similar situations and the vast majority of them in England assuming that the hypnotist actually had insurance even when the hypnotist if it was argued in court would win because there's video footage to prove they didn't do something wrong quite often the insurance company still pays off the person making yeah. the claim because it works out to be cheaper than going to court and fighting it but you don't hear about it fortunately those that get it's all settled quietly but sadly there's a lot of them that get paid off yeah and when you think about it look at the people that are really in injured in stage shows or even in therapy sessions because the therapist or the performer has not been trained in safety or in looking at physical triggers or signs that could create a a a uh, unstable environment you know what i'm saying oh yeah well we're getting very close to getting to the subject of real dangers of hypnosis uh but before we do one final thing on stage and street hypnosis before we go into therapy and then kill the hypnotist um 
There was a TV show you were involved. I don't know. I don't know if I mentioned this in London or not, but I came up with a television format in the uh, mid '90s called the, the the working title and the treatment was hypnotism and sex. Uh, because I've got a book out of that name that came out in the mid-90s because the media in England said, I hypnotised women into bed to shag them. Not true. They took a stage routine out of context, but that's by the by. This, the, 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 the treatment was that people were hypnotised to reveal their deepest, darkest sexual fantasies. And that was pitched to Channel 4 TV in England and a company called Objective Productions, who ultimately then made a program called Hypnosex, where it was about exploring people's sexual fantasies. Unfortunately, I had not properly copyrighted it, but that's a different issue. But I can prove that they got it off me. And uh, Objective Productions then sold that format to the Playboy channel, and it became the Extreme Truth, which you, which you did. Yes. I did the extreme truth. Now I thought I was going to get barbecued by all these hypnotists, you know, out there because I'm I'm asking, you know, under hypnosis or under the under the influence. I like using the word influence. It's much better. Under, yeah, it's much better and it's more accurate because the word hypnosis is a very confused, incorrect word, just like sleep and deeper and deeper and trance and all that other stuff, you know. So under the influence. Um, they were revealing things that they kept secret from their their partners or their lovers. Like if they were having affairs or if they didn't like the person the way they smelled or the way they had sex. And then they would also talk about their, their secret fantasy or the craziest sex they've ever had. So I'm signed to Playboy and they're doing a 13-show series. So um, I wanted them to make me, to not show me, they they... they kind of shut the lights so you couldn't really see me too well like that. Ah, okay. And, and that's what I wanted to do because I, I, I thought, you know, this might ruin my career. I only had one lady call me and say, how dare you do the Playboy show like that? It was so sexual. But if she said that, what the hell is she doing watching Playboy? Exactly. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. So then they did reenactments. They did these sexual reenactments. It was almost kind of like a, a light porn show. I'm on I'm on this light porn show and it and it's airing, you know, and then and I got my kid coming in the living room. I'm thinking, Nicole, you can't be here, you know, because they're showing people like they're humping and, and they're showing breasts and all this stuff. I mean, it, it was a, it was pretty damn sexual. So uh, and they got a great deal because they paid me fifteen hundred a day and I was doing about um two shows, filming two shows a day. But what the interesting thing is, they did background checks on everybody. Mm -hmm. Some people had IDs from dead people. Some people were felons and people in prison or, or abuse or murderers. So they actually had to eliminate a lot of people that wanted to be on this show because you can imagine all these people wanting to be on a Playboy Channel show. Yeah. And going around and being on the Playboy set is kind of interesting when you're seeing these ladies walk by, you know, and, and they're... You know, hey, I have I had a sex drive. I gotta tell you, I was married, but still, you know, I can still be influenced by that kind of stuff. And just being there was kind of an interesting deal. So um, anyway, um, and I think my co-host was some who knows. I think she was some sex lady. Did, did all them porno films or whatever. But anyway, the show was really interesting. I pre-hypnotized them, of course, 
and 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 used an EEG. So I actually I actually had him hooked up to to uh, neurofeedback. So it was the very first TV show that actually shows brainwave changes under different states of relaxation or receptibility, whatever you want to call it. But it shows different changes of conscious conscious activity. See, I like to look at the mind as, as, as it's an activity meter. Orman says the brain is an organ. The mind is a mechanism for producing thoughts. So within this electrical computer, there's activity that goes on. And with the neurofeedback or diagnostic tool, you can see activity changing, showing different changes of, of, of the full spectrum of consciousness. So I did that show, um, which was really kind of cool. I got to be the first one doing it. So then they wanted to do a second show. They wanted to do a sequel. They wanted to do more. But they told me they wanted people to be more over the top. Mm. He kind of, he suggested to me that we didn't really care if they how hypnotized they were. But we wanted them to get into fights and arguments like a Jerry Springer deal. So when he told me that, I said, no, I'm not going to do it at that point. Then they hired the Las Vegas guy that wound up doing a number of series. I won't give his name out or talk about him. You might know who he is. But, uh, I do. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. I don't want to deal with him because I've had too many problems with him, too many conflicts with him. I'll right. tell you, folks, I've been in this field for 37 years. I've been threatened by other hypnotists and stage hypnotists. I, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've never had so many people attack me in my life for what I do in the field of hypnotism from other hypnotists. Jealousy. My wife tell you, it's there's some, some of the most angry, aggressive, jealous, craziest psych, psychos out there. You know, and I'm telling you this, and, and this is out there, and this is the truth. There were times I couldn't even go on my email because I was being attacked by these goddamn wackos, man. You know, and they were hypnotists. But it's jealousy out and out. The simple fact is you were getting the television, the radio, the newspapers, the magazines uh, and whatnot. And it's jealousy. And the irony of it is I, I've had a lot of that in England because I, until, in fairness, in the past decade, it's not been the case. But in the 90s and early 90s, I had more, there was only Paul McKenna had more publicity than me. And I got attacked because people are jealous and yet if they got off their ass and put that same amount of energy and focus into promoting themselves they'd have nothing to be jealous about and, and as far as i'm concerned you're one of the best marketing promotion people i've ever seen and met in my entire life i think you are fantastic at what you do how you get your product out there how you tell the truth about things um you know and, and there were times i can go anywhere and i can and I would see Jonathan Royal everywhere. I mean, you were you were a master doing it. And and again, the same thing. I used to hear people say say negative things about you, but it's all because they're just jealous. I, I'll never forget. I was in Las Vegas when I was dating my my current wife, and we were with two guys. The one guy that was sued at at Harrah's, mm -hmm. you know, and and then another guy who uh, was in Las Vegas for a long time, Justin. I won't give you his last name, but it begins with a J. Um, and I don't know if you know who, remember who he is, know who he is. Yeah, just be safe on stage, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's him. So anyway, so getting drunk at this uh, Italian restaurant, and they're, they're, you know, all of a sudden he's yelling at his, his girlfriend and calling her a fat pig and you're ugly and all this crap. 
and then he's then he's pretending they're they're impersonating stage hypnotists. So he does a Tom Silver impersonation. They do Marshall Silver. They're doing all this stuff. Then he's looking at me and he's going, you know, you're old, man. You're old. You're a has been. No one wants to see you on TV anymore. He goes, you might as well just quit. He goes, I'm going to be the big hypnotist on TV. I'm going to do things that much better than you because you're just you're old. Look at you. You're an old man. He's saying all this shit to me in front of my 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 girlfriend at the time, who's my wife, and he's getting drunk and, and you know, and the and then they're imitating and pretending they're like black women and black people from the 30s, and the bouncers are black guys. So they're they're doing setting up a dangerous environment. So so then they're taking photos with me because they want photos or whatever. We're walking out and one of the bouncers was ready to hit us over the head with a steel pipe. You know, because I'm with them. So they think I'm this prejudiced guy or whatever. Yeah. Luckily, the owner stopped them. But the funny thing is that guy, Justin, I have never seen him on a TV show since that bullshit. He's never done anything. And I did Brainwash. I did Jeff Probst. I did Bill Cunningham. Uh, I did The Doctors, uh, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills twice, the, the Bill and Alana show, Home and Family show. But yet... He's telling me I'm old and I'm nothing and I might as well quit. That's the kind of jealousy and petty bullshit that sometimes you and I have had to deal with in the past. And viewers and listeners who don't know, you'll soon find out when you go on YouTube and search. But that sounded like Tom was reeling out his CV. It's not even close to scraping the surface of the amount of television he's done. Not even bloody close. Um, so, yeah, let's now move into hypnotherapy. And I think Tom's... Oh, no, he's unfrozen. That's brilliant. I thought he was going to freeze again then. Uh, yeah, hypnotherapy. I'm, I, I'd already been doing hypnotherapy, but I, obviously I came along to your course in 2004, and you were doing, obviously, your EEG, brainwave uh, hypnotherapy section of it, physical and shock rapid inductions, and yeah. uh, emotional replacement therapy which i always get the yeah. name wrong and call it emotional release therapy but it's replacement now um yeah. i very briefly explain that to the viewers at home if you're watching the video there's a lot more to it than this you need to go and buy dvds from tom's website tomsilver.com but effectively you get a full-arm catalepsy in somebody and you get them to take all the negative feelings thoughts emotions and connected stuff and transfer it from every nerve fiber tissue and muscle in the body from the tips of the toes right. to the tips of the fingers up through down the shoulder down the arm to the wrist so it's all in the arm you get the arm catalepsy there and it's really stiff and then you tell them that in a few moments time on the count of three i'm going to tap you on the wrist when i do it'll be a sign and a signal that all of that negativity will just immediately drain out and your arm will become loose limp relax like a loose limp rag doll one two three you touch them the arm drops down nearly sent my computer flying then because i hit the headphone cable the arm flops down in the lap and then that stage one you've removed the negativity and then you replace it with a positive replacement obviously when you get tom's dvds you'll find there's more to it than that that's just a brief overview but there was tons of stuff like that that you taught amazing course um anyone watching or listening will know that there's very few people on this planet who i actually recommend by name 
uh, I tend to not name names and say, do your research. Don't believe what they say on the website because lots of people in this industry like go and make sure the truth that they've actually done something in the real world. Well, that's a piece of piss to do when it comes to Tom. You just go on YouTube, type in Tom Silver. You'll see all the social proof and evidence you could ever want. And then just go to his website and order the DVDs. But give the viewers and listeners, if you would, a bit more of an insight into your philosophies and thoughts and the way you molded your own techniques in hypnotherapy. Before we get on to killer hypnotist. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, TomSilver.com. Just my name, TomSilver.com. Before we do that, I want to mention, though, that I'm going to be in Europe, actually, in uh, September. I'm, and near the end of September, I'll be teaching scientific hypnosis in Holland. Then I'll be flying to Georgia, the country, the Slavic country of Georgia. I'm introducing that country, that so ex-Soviet country, to hypnosis. There's nothing here in hypnosis. So we've opened up, my representative, their sponsor, is opening up the United States Board of Clinical Hypnosis, USBCH, which is my registered name, in, in Georgia. So I'll be teaching there. And then I'm going to the Italy convention. That, you know, Marco Perret, I don't know if you know who he is. He's the mesmerism. Yeah, the, yeah mesmerism. Yeah. Yeah, mesmerism guy. So I'll be going back to Italy also in October. So if we get a chance to meet, I, I'd love to get together with you. And, well, and, hopefully the flights will be allowed again. Now, I mean, you'll be able to get there, but at the moment, we're not allowed to leave England and go pretty much anywhere in Europe. Well, we're not allowed to go pretty much anywhere at the moment with this COVID yeah. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. The same thing here, but we'll see what happens. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll, but, you know, I, here's my belief. I believe every, every habit or addiction or phobia, whatever you want to call it, I believe it's got an emotional attachment and a physical, physiological attachment. And I do believe that certain chemicals are stimulated in the brain, in the lower stem of the brain, that that will either amplify your epinephrines, your adrenalines, or your dopamines, or serotonins, or deamplify them. So that's why I came up with ERT, emotional replacement therapy. And that's why I, I physically do what I do to desensitize the physiological attachment to that thought or emotion or addiction or habit, you know, whether it's smoking cigarettes or, or shooting heroin. And um, once I can, once I can lower the chemical secretion through suggestion, through instructions, think about it. What are we, what are we doing as hypnotherapists? We talk about suggestions, but really what are we doing? We're giving them instructions. Yeah. Right. We're giving them instructions or we're we're giving them a a message or instruction to follow that's how i like to look at hypnosis you know is a form a series of instructions and if you follow those instructions um that you will possibly feel the effects of the process so it's a process like anything else hypnosis is a process and um and when i graduated hypnosis i really started to explore the idea of suggestion. I started studying a guy named Emil Kuei. Do you know Emil Kuei? Day by so, day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. You know, and think about that. We can call that a mantra. We can call it a phrase. We can call it an affirmation or a suggestion. But but Emil Kuei was a French psychologist in the late 1800s. You know, I think he even knew Charcot and, and Bernheim, those kinds of cats. Anyway... In the 1920s, we went through the Great Depression. 
That's where the stock market crashed. People were losing millions of dollars. People were jumping off of buildings, committing suicide. All these businessmen, you know, they thought they lost everything, which they did. They just didn't realize they can get it back. So you think about it. It's your mindset. If I have a million-dollar mindset, even if I have a million dollars, I lose a million dollars, I'm going to always get that million dollars back because that's my mindset. That's my life script. That's my belief system. So when when Emil Kuei created that phrase, every day and in every way, I'm getting better and better, that got, the, that got people out of the Great Depression. It gave them hope. What do we do with therapists and therapy? What is, what is hypnotherapy? You're giving someone hope. You're giving them a series of ideas to think differently, to have different emotional responses, and to maybe change certain habits by replacing with another habit. So I'm a big believer that if I just stop smoking, well, there's a void. What if the smoking was a symptom to a cause? And maybe if I remove the symptom, the cause is still there. So some hypnotherapists go to the cause to remove the cause, which might alleviate the symptoms. Some people work on symptom removal. What do medical doctors do? What's meds? What are medicines, prescription medicine? Prescription medicine works on symptoms, yeah. alleviating the symptom. But if I'm not going to pull out the poisonous root, the weed, if I don't get rid of the cause, uh, maybe the symptom will be there still. If I remove the habit and I don't replace it with something else, the person might fill it up with some, something else. I remember once I got someone off of cigarettes. But the cigarette smoking was an emotional bandage to remove anger. So mm -hmm. when he smoked the cigarette, it created a psychosomatic, psychological feeling that it was going to relax you. Cigarette relaxes me. Well, how the hell does a cigarette relax you when it's full of two stimulants, sugar, uh, nicotine? So, so the thought of the cigarette relaxing you, well, chemically speaking, it's going to amplify your nervous system, yeah. your automatic nervous system. But psychologically... It's an emotional bandage. That's what drugs and alcohol is. Usually it relates sometimes to a trauma in the past. So I'm a big believer with ERT, the, the method I formulated for 25 years, that if I can remove thought from stimulating the emotion, the thought from stimulating a physical response to that emotion, then I've already been lowered the activity of that that emotion, that phobia or that addiction, because I shut the chemicals off. That will create a physiological change. And I believe the brain and the mind work together, neurophysiology. What I think, if I believe is real, will send a message into my brain, which will activate the, the various changes in the spinal cord, the electrical transmissions to the body, and it'll have an effect on the sympathetic nervous system, which is the amplified nervous system that's adrenaline filled or acids or stress filled or the parasympathetic nervous system which is a relaxing calm nervous system and we know that hypnosis when you hypnotize a person and you give them suggestions of that relaxation the relax your eyelids relax your muscles what are you doing you're calming the nervous system down right yeah closing your eyes alters brainwave frequencies 
down to 10 hertz. So if I remove visual stimulation, visual stimuli, or visual distraction by having a person close their eyes, they're already going into, into a more enhanced suggestive state. They're, they're more influenced without visual resistance or distraction. You know that when you're talking to somebody, if they're engaging and looking at you and they're engaging in communication, they're more focused to hear what you're saying. Yeah. But if you're talking to me and I'm looking away and I'm doing all this stuff, how much are they really listening? Or they're thinking about something else or they're wanting to, it, to give their opinion so they're not even hearing what you say. The part of our society now that's in danger is the society of people that do not know how to focus and concentrate. They are, we are in such a distracted, stimulated, adrenaline, bells and whistles type of state right now that most people don't know how to do just what we're doing. We're, we're engaging. We're in, if you want to call this hypnosis, this is a form of hypnosis. Uh, because, yeah, because this is communication, transmission, transmission, acknowledged, received, transmission, transmission, acknowledged, and received. So teaching people how to tune in is what we really need to do. They need to learn how to tune into their own thoughts, because how can I change my thoughts if I'm not aware of my thoughts? They need to tune into the emotions that they are experiencing, because if I'm experiencing it, I don't have to own it. I don't have to nurture it. I don't have to massage being stressed or tensed or angry. Look what occurred in Washington, D.C. the other day. That mob was influenced over a repetition of stimulating emotions, creating a belief system, taking the truth and distorting the truth or creating a new truth. And when they attacked that capital, they went in like a mob. And all you have to do is be the mob leader. All you have to do is be team leader because once you show them what to do, they are manipulated to do it. They become the puppets. And all you have to do is pull their string. All I have to do is, is, is start yelling, pens, pens, let's get them, let's get them. Pretty soon I'm creating this overactive, overreactive state. And at that point, I've got them influenced, suggestible. So now I need to get a leader to start hitting on that window with a pipe. All of a sudden, they're grabbing the pipes. They're hitting on it. What we saw in Washington, D.C., you can call it mass hysteria. You can call it hate, hate. I call it massive influential brainwashing to the greatest, strongest degree. Whereas if they got one of those senators, they might have ripped their head off and killed them. So yeah. we got to really be careful what's going on out there because being influenced, being influenced in a clinical environment through a hypnotherapy practitioner or whatever, they're there for your betterment if they're wording the words correctly. But, but I, I trained a girl from Indonesia once, and she thinks that as long as she can get you mad and angry and want to rip her head off, that it was successful. She believed in ab reaction, screaming, yelling, crying. Mm -hmm. Well, oh, that's that that's that that if I can get you to scream and yell and cry, uh, that that's a breakthrough. Guess what? It might be amplifying the pain even more because you've released it out and you have not let it go. Yeah. ERT, I can bring out whatever that emotion is: fear, trauma, abuse, torture. You don't. Have, I I direct the mind not to feel it. 
So I lower the emotional experience. So they're almost like in a in an absence of emotion. I put it into the body, release it systematically, challenge them to find it, to connect to it. And if they can't connect to it, then I replace it with what it is they want to feel, what it is the habit that they want to to experience, how that would make them feel. I'm changing their physiology. I'm rewiring the brain. And what we're doing is we're deleting an old, uh, we can call a mental virus or, or a encrypted file that has malware. And we're re-institutionalizing a new operating system. And all they have to do is think differently. And think about it. How many hypnotists only work with the subconscious, but they don't teach people how to think differently? How to witness your thoughts versus being a slave and a robot and manipulated by this thought mind. Because mo- a lot of things we think are not even real, not even mm. What do you think about that stuff, what I just said? I could not agree more. And it's almost like you knew where we were heading with this interview, because it does segue wonderfully into the next section, as many viewers and listeners will know. Um, last year, 2019, I made a documentary called Extreme Danger, Extreme Hypnosis. It's time for the sleepwalking zombies to wake up to essentially illustrate as much as was possible in an hour and 45 minutes how suggestion, influence, call it what you will, affects human beings from every area of their daily life through politics, religion, the indoctrination, sorry, education system, basically every area of life and how that can be negative and dangerous and misused is used to manipulate people especially with the media and we're living in that world now now you're one of the very few handful of hypnotists whether you want to look at that for viewers or listeners from a stage hypnosis hypnotherapy doesn't matter what point of view tom is one of the handful of people in the world that either a knows how to or b will admit because some people out there who won't admit it i think probably do know how to do what we're going to talk about but think it could work against them admitting it but the vast majority believe that it is not possible and most of them i believe think it's not possible because they were taught that by the person who taught them so you know it's become a a fallacy they believe that it's not possible to make anyone say or do anything that would contradict the morals of the values that you can't get people to do things against the will that the manchurian candidate is just a film about the idea of a science fiction idea of hypnotizing someone to become an assassin and the mk ultra is some conspiracy nonsense well i'm going to tell you before i get tom to go into hopefully great depth about this the MK Ultra recently documents in the past few years have been declassified. It's not conspiracy theory. It's a fact that they experimented with trauma-based mind control, also involving hypnosis and influence and suggestion of many forms. It is a fact that the British government, America do it as well, but in Britain, uh, the, the mainstream media currently talk about the behavioral insights team based in Westminster advising on how to get the COVID take your vaccine message out there. But the media have done the nudge unit. 
because that's what they're doing, nudging people's behavior. And they are linked to the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations that are in the same office as the British Psychological Society on a back street in London. I cover this in my documentary. Who are linked to the Tavistock Hospital that were involved with the MK Ultra mind control experiments. What I'm saying in a nutshell is the governments in England, America, and many other places have been studying how to manipulate you, me, all of us, for nefarious means, as well as positive, but nefarious means for decades, and that being able to hypnotize people to kill does exist. Uh, Saran Saran um, is a famous example of someone, this is covered in a documentary. If you go on Google, type in brainwash to kill Tom Silver, you will find his Discovery Channel show, which was loosely based by Discovery, nothing to do with Tom. Did they influence because they didn't want to pay the license fee to objective productions for Darren Brown's assassin show that had been done the previous year that I was indirectly a consultant on with the uh, ice bath test that they did. Um, it is possible. It's not a television science fiction thing. But for those that still think, well, maybe it is, Let's hear something from someone who's actually gone into the real world, not just made a TV show. Because it's one thing making a TV show like Brainwash to Kill or Darren Brown's Assassin. Because it's still a TV show. Going into the real world where there are, is the potential for dangerous, fatal consequence if things don't work. Hence the title of Tom's wife's book, Kill the Hypnotist, which is where we're going with this. Tom, ultimately, you spent some time in Taiwan hypnotizing military prisoners to try and get to the bottom of the corruption and the murder of a, let me try and say this right, Captain Yin Ching Feng. Yes. Can you tell us about this and how mind control, hypnosis, suggestion, call it what you will, it's not a conspiracy theory. You, you, you have first-hand knowledge it's a very real fact. Well, I want to clarify that when Darren Brown did his show, which I didn't see until someone told me after the brainwash show aired, uh, I was told that he conditioned some of the people. In other words, the, the shooter guy, I think if I remember something, he took him to a shooting range and he did all these things to kind he of... Did, he did it a bit more closely aligned to what actually is in declassified MKUltra documents. Yeah, me, I, I just I just got the right state of mind and I just went for it. So, I mean, I might have spent a total of a half hour with that one guy over three or four periods when, when they flew me out there to do the show. This, the ice water submersion thing um, and then him ultimately to, to shoot the uh, perpetrator. I didn't even want to I didn't want to set it up. I didn't want to set it up to create a, a moral thing that this guy's going to kill a bunch of kids. I didn't want to even set the mind up. I just wanted to show that someone could be programmed and triggered to do something, and then and then once they do it, it's erased. It's forgotten to the point that they would pass a lie detector test. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that's real. So um, the stuff I did with these people, I did it. I would say much much quicker than the reinforcement of the programming that went on with Darren Brown, yeah. but it was just two techniques. So this production company took those ideas and they, they brought it to me first. First of all, they contacted me two years earlier. So they were thinking about this before Darren Brown's deal. 
And they said to me, Tom, can you hypnotize somebody against their will to kill somebody? And I said, yeah, of course. They say, well, everyone says it can't be done. I said, it can be done. I said, shoot, man, I can do it. I said, maybe it can't be done to them because they don't think it can be done or they're afraid to reveal the truth about it because it might affect their little business or school or whatever. So, so then he calls me back about a year, year and a half later. And he asked me the same question again. So they were thinking about it before Darren Brown's deal because they were thinking about the Manchurian Candidate, the movie with Frank Sinatra. Now, mm. Frank Sinatra was programmed through drugs, but I don't need drugs to program someone to commit murder or horrific crime or commit suicide or whatever. I can do it through influence, through suggestion. So um, they called me and asked me again. I said, yeah, of course it could be done. They said, you're the only one that says it. I said, I, I, I can prove it. So, but they wanted to make sure that I was the real deal. So they flew me to New York. They had me hypnotize a group of people that worked at the production company mm -hmm. to do some different things in front of the owner of the production company, who was this real, you know, control freak, kind of aggressive guy that everyone was afraid of. So I had some girl come up to him in his office and confront him and do something she would have never done because of fear of losing her job. But I, I set it up because I wanted to prove to them that the power of the influence under whatever we want. We'll use the word hypnosis, you know. So, um, so, then, so then they sold the show to Discovery Channel and they flew me out. Now, we worked on what was called the Stanford Susceptibility, Hypnotic Susceptibility Test. So we wanted to create what we might call negative influences, negative uh, uh, illusions, or positive illusions. Something negative is you have somebody get upset at you. Like when I used to do fraternity shows, I would do this technique where I said, every time I say, ladies and gentlemen, it's going to bug the crap out of you. You're going to get real mad at me. You're going to tell me to shut up. You're going to yell, ah, shut up. So I would do that little routine. I go, okay, what we're showing you here, ladies and gentlemen, ah, shut up. I go up to the person, I go, are, are you upset? And they go, no, I, I'm enjoying it. You see, because some people, they get into this state of mind where they actually don't remember what they have done. A form of natural chemical or, 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 or neuro amnesia occurs. But how many people forget what they've done without being influenced through hypnosis? You forget where you put your keys down in your house. You forget where your cell phone is. You're calling your cell phone. You forget you locked your door. So anyway, so um, so then they flew me back and we did some tests and and I rated people on a one to five scale. Five, I thought that they were really uh, receptive. We know they were really complying, whether they're receptive or not. You know that goes. Everyone has their own understanding or meaning, and I'm not going to bore you with the fact that I do believe some people, I can shut off the consciousness, and what I can program in, it's like I'm programming something in the computer that they're not even aware it's being programmed in. They don't even know it's being downloaded, but I'm downloading something. So we wound up doing the brainwash show. I could have easily given that guy a real gun. Now, and even if you're on TV, um, you, you might do it because you're on TV and maybe you're going to think, well, no one's going to give me a real gun. But I, I, Bruce Lee died with a real gun on a movie set. And they thought it was a fake gun, but someone put a real bullet in there. So I did brainwash where I hypnotized this guy. And I threw a series of post-hypnotic suggestions, a series of 
triggered influences. I kind of like that word. I like the word influence. So yeah, I do a yeah. series of triggers when that when you you know um, and and the first trigger was when someone shakes your hand and he says whatever the guy's name was you did a spectacular job. I had the guy come in and do that. So I, w how it ended was I had the the producer had the guy think he was eliminated from the show. He wasn't good enough. By the way, on that show, Brainwash, they planted a faker in that show, some chick that went along. They wanted to see if they could bullshit and fake me into thinking someone was really hypnotized. I eliminated her when they uh, on the morality thing when they took their clothes off. Yes. I knew she was. But anyway, um, so the trigger was I, I went to say goodbye to them. Hey, man, nice seeing you. And I threw them down in hypnosis. I conditioned them. How many people are conditioned? We're all conditioned. You can call it brainwashed. Uh, we're conditioned. Government, the government conditions you. The, the, the leaders, politicians condition you. We're conditioned through all the, the fear of, of getting sick. What do they do on TV with the commercials? They talk about, you know, how, how they, they sell fear to sell a prescription to remove, the, to remove your, your fear of a disease, but yet the side effects of that prescription might kill you anyway. You know, <laughs> so, so I did the brainwash show. Now there were three people that did it. The first one I knew was that, that that went and shot the guy at the end. They only showed the one guy. The first guy I knew was faking. I watched him. And again, Orman, I'm not doing a stage show. I want to look for a real phenomenon of altered reality. And, and I do believe some people are influencing into an altered reality state. That the same thing that you could get influence if someone gave you some kind of truth serum or some other kind of, you know, chemical. Um, and so I confronted him at the end and I, I confronted him in front of everybody and said, you were faking. You knew exactly what you were doing. You were doing this to be on TV. He copped to it. The second one, the girl who shot the guy said she would never hold a gun. But the influence of my suggestion was so strong that she couldn't resist the impulse. Think about it. Sometimes we are creating an irresistible, uncontrollable impulse that will be more powerful than the logic and reason not to do something. Hmm. Make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, oh, yeah. Think about it. Uncontrollable suggestion that creates an urge that overrides your logic and reason and willpower or your, your, your um, uh, ethics or morality. So she did it. She didn't want to do it, but she couldn't stop herself from doing it. So I had her program where she knew exactly what she was doing and couldn't stop herself from doing it. And I think, and, I, and Sirhan Sirhan for sure was hypnotized. The guy in Las Vegas that blew away them 50-something people at, at the concert, the country show, he was programmed. And it's easy to program a person. You do a series of techniques or exercises or processes to bypass the conscious, to get the intellect out of the way or completely shut it off. And if and some people you can actually create spontaneous memory loss. You've done that. You've done that with people mm -hmm. where you can actually really create amnesia. And but it's on it's not on a high percentage of the population. And you don't need a high percentage of the population well, to not set do, up to not do it. It's not a high percentage doing it the way you've just described, but arguably um what are your thoughts on the MK Ultra route? Because that way, pretty much anybody 
it's not about a percentage factor it's just about to what levels of uh torture or pain even if that's induced psychologically are used to splinter the consciousness and create different multiple personalities and alters in the mind absolutely torture pain fear and sleep deprivation or anger if i can get you angry enough i will turn you into a madman into a killer into a pathological killer and if i can stimulate the addiction to kill that's what a serial killer is if i can stimulate the joy and the dopamine and the thrill of killing then all of a sudden when you're not doing it you need your fix and my fix is to go out and do something terrible to a human being and people are programmed that way sometimes at birth with an abusive parent why do you think abused women girls tend to find abuse mates and partners when they get older because to form warped expression of this person cares about me but i do believe it i do believe that almost every human being through a series of of techniques of deprivations or torture or whatever through the repetition of that you can break down their consciousness you can break down their morality that's what happened to patty hearse they they filled her up with so much of what they thought was the truth they gave her a new truth that's why she was able to go into a bank fully conscious of what she was doing and would have blown away somebody that that didn't follow the orders during that bank robbery so yeah almost a high percentage of the population at, through a certain amount of desensitization or programming will be programmed to do something that they would never do. What did Hitler do? Hitler was trained by Eric Honnison from Hungary. He was trained in movements, like Donald Trump does, in throwing in long, strong words, creating anger, creating hatred. He took regular civilized people, and they were the people throwing people into the gas chambers. They were the people putting people into the ovens. They were the people burning down their neighbors' businesses, turning in their Jewish friends some of their best friends or family members so and ironically hitler had a jewish hypnotist and clairvoyant working for him called hansen yeah uh eric hansen yeah. hansen or hansen yes uh who actually wound up getting getting killed by general goering later on because but but yes and what do you think donald trump does you know i'll talk about donald trump watch him watch his rhetoric Drain the swamp. It's the power of three repetition. Yep. And you throw in something negative, uh, crooked Hillary, you know, uh, Rocket Man, you know, the guy in North Korea. You know, he, he befriends the enemies because they they pat his ego, make him feel important. If you talk your course, it's uh, when you're giving suggestions, it's got to be short and sweet. As few words as possible that will plant a seed of the biggest potential picture to grow. You said you, you, you remembered perfectly. A simple word reinforced many times is more stronger, more powerful, more atomic than a whole bunch of loose words thrown all over the place. That's why the Ericksonian stuff and the metaphors and all those stories to kind of confuse a person or, or get them to go into hypnosis or whatever isn't really necessary. The subconscious is a direct computer. It's a literal computer. What you push in, if, 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 I, can, if I can download it and reinforce it, 
it will be part of your of your whole kinesthetics, part of your physiology, part of your neurology. But getting back to, can someone be hypnotized, manipulated, influenced to kill? Absolutely. You could put me into a room of, I'll just say 30 people. Give me a good, old ladies, retirees, young kids, professionals, lawyers, I don't give a damn who they are. Put me into a room of 30 people, and I guarantee you within a half hour, I can at least, I'll just do the minimum. Within a half hour, I can at least program three people to go out, take a gun, set the time, set the trigger, and at a certain time, at a certain place, to be able to do whatever I downloaded in them to do, to walk into a hotel room and shoot the clerk at the hotel, to walk into a bank and, and rob the bank and shoot everyone in the bank. But then... I can even take it one step further. I can program them to drop off the money at a location, and once they drop that money off at the location, to take that gun to their head and kill themselves, to get rid of them. So that's how powerful the, the art of suggestion could be manipulated into a person. I can take a grandmother who has been the most religious Christian woman, who I condition into the very receptive state, where where I can give her an impulse. I can stimulate an impulse in the mind. At 11 o'clock at night, you're going to get up out of your bed. You're going to realize the neighbors next door who have three daughters, that there are these poisonous rodents and rats that are infiltrating the house. And if they bite one of the girls, they're going to give them rabies. They're going to kill the children. You can save the children because in your garage is a gallon of, of gasoline, five-gallon can of gasoline. So you're going to take that gasoline you're going to pour it all around the perimeter of the house. You're going to take that, that match or that lighter that's in your kitchen drawer. You're going to take it out. You're going to light that gasoline because you're going to burn, because what that gasoline and that fire is going to do, is going to kill the rodents. It's going to save those, that family. As soon as you light that, that match onto the gasoline and the fire starts, you're going to go into your bed feeling really good that you've saved these children. You're going to fall asleep, drift asleep. You're going to have a beautiful dream. You're going to dream of the ocean when you wake up in the morning. Or are you going to remember this beautiful dream of the ocean? Boom. I've, I've programmed in a violent deed, but I've given a justification for her to even do it, bypassing all morality. Mm. Or direct the same direct, simple suggestion. Well, I was going to bring that up because one of my early teachers no longer with us, Delavar, in his book, The Hypnotist Bible, he talks about how... Um, well, he alludes to the f fact, in the book, he actually alludes to the fact that he, he did work with the British military on this level. He certainly he was of the right age, that's for sure. But he explains that one of the easiest ways of getting people to do things that they say can't be done is to just reframe it so that the person, like you said, thinks they're doing something that's beneficial, positive, or within their moral code and value, so they're never then aware on any conscious, unconscious, or any level that what they did had a nefarious, negative, lethal consequence. You're absolutely right. Reframe it. Create a storyline. Create a, a deed of doing good, but in but in complete opposite, what they think they're doing is good is going to be catastrophic to the outcome of what they did, like the lady pouring gasoline around the home and lighting it on fire, you know, or, or you could, or you use anger. And that's what we did on brainwashed. 
This guy was a corrections officer, and the suggestion was that there's a guy that's, that's going to, you know, blow up some buildings, kill a bunch of children. You don't want those children killed. So he's going he's gonna to be, as soon as he walks out of this room, he's going to have a briefcase in his hand. And as soon as he has that briefcase in the hand, you're going to shoot him three or four times. And as soon as you shoot him three or four times because you don't want him to hurt those children, you're going to drop the gun out of your hand. You're going to forget everything that's occurred and come out of hypnosis. Boom. I've set up a scenario. But I could have just as easily, because the literal direction, once I remove morality, once I break through intellect, once I break through morality, once I break through your, your programmed life script or behavior, I can just put the message right in. You walk out of the room. You're going to go up to that motorcycle. There's a gun in that motorcycle. You're going to take out that gun. You're going to walk over to the rope. The man's going to walk out of the rope. You're going to point the gun at his head, shoot him four times, drop the gun, and forget everything that's occurred. Or I can say once you shoot him four times, you're going to feel so terrible about what you did. You're going to turn the gun towards yourself and shoot yourself in the head. Boom. By doing that, I've already gotten rid of the witness, because he could be a witness that I manipulated him, but I got rid of the witness. Now, do you know Alfred Binet wrote a book called Animal Magnetism in the late 1800s? Pick it up. It's one of my favorite books, because at the Salt Heat Tree Hospital, is that how it's pronounced? Charcot's yeah, yeah. Uh, the Nancy School of Hypnosis and all that in France. Yeah, but, Shark, but Alfred Binet, who was a real famous uh, psychologist and real famous person and also a magnetist hypnotist they were doing these experiments back in the 1800s and they found out that these experiments proved so successfully they were using rubber knives and things like that but they and they were working with people suffering from hysteria back then you know and and Orman McGill always said hypnosis the state of hypnosis is the closest state to insanity they're both right next to each other. So what we're doing, and the insanity of the mind is the creative aspect of mind. Think of Michelangelo as being insane, Galileo as being insane, because a sane mind isn't going to go out of the box and create and manifest something that's out of the norm of reality. So, um, but Orman used to say that, that suggestions people follow in hypnosis is just, is it's just like insanity, except it's a controlled insanity. That's what Orman McGill told me. It's controlled insanity, which I, which I found kind of extraordinary. But yes, people could be influenced through, through what you talked about, through different secret service agents, through fear, through deprivation, through reinforcement of suggestion. If I reinforce that somebody is going to take away what you have, like the Jewish people who are stealing your money, who are taking your land. I'm Jewish, so I know all about this stuff. If I can reinforce the so hate, can, can I was just thinking we're getting a bit yeah. edgy there, but go on. Yeah, but if if I can reinforce the hatred you have against somebody that's been stealing from you all your life and your family's life and everything else, and I can turn it into a truth, if I can make you believe it's a truth then you're going to react to that truth. Yeah. What do you think of that? It's, I couldn't agree. It's extremely powerful. And it is, on, that's the one extreme. I mean, there's a lower extreme, but happening on a daily basis around the world is, but it illustrates repetition, as you've just said, and that is 
the fear messages they instill into the population through media stories. Did I tell you about the CIA operative that contacted me? No, please do. Okay, so I'm working with this uh, this lawyer, uh, no, this um, um, agent, talent agent for kids. And so I'm working, I hypnotized her daughter who had some emotional issues, and I plus did some fun on the radio show with her. So next thing you know, um, her husband's a lawyer. Her, her name was Pat Bigley. His name was Bruce Bigley. And I don't care if I'm saying it. Who cares? What are you going to do to me? You're going to find me and, and hurt me? I don't really care. So anyway, so I get a call one day from Bruce Bigley wanting me to speak to a top CIA official. And so I'm going, wow, what's this about? So he puts this guy on the phone with me. This guy's like in South America because, you know, they were doing a lot of work, the CIA in South America, trying to find the, the leaders of these drug cartels and these gangs and everything. So he calls me up, and I'm on this three-way conversation. And the guy says to me, he goes, um, thanks for speaking to me, Tom. He goes, I'm really a, a, one of the top guys in the CIA. He gave me my, his name. I don't remember his name. But he goes, you can look me up in the, in the different books. He goes, I'm out there. And I did find him. He was like one of these top commander guys. He said, I need you to help me. He goes, my girlfriend went on a few missions with me that I wasn't supposed to take her on these missions. So she's seen things that she wasn't supposed to see. And he goes, he called the CIA, he called it the company. I guess their nickname is called the company. You'll have to look that up. Okay. And he said, if they find out that she was with me, they're going to take her out. So he goes, I want you, she lived like in the Midwest. He goes, I will pay you anything you want. Money's no object. He goes, can you, he goes, would you be able to hypnotize her and erase her memory? Now I've been doing research and testing in, in memory erasal, just removing files out of the memory banks, just like removing folders. And I got really good at it. So I knew I can erase her memory. If I had her, if I created that right, state of receptivity i could erase the data of of her being somewhere or going somewhere i knew without a doubt i could do it you know because i already knew the the true potential of mind yeah. control we become the operators we become the operators of their mind at times if they if we can get in then then we're the ones that are doing it so so i said yeah it can be done so he goes i want you to move into her house next door i will take care of everything and I want you to make friends with her, but don't tell her what you're going to do, but I want you to hypnotize her and erase her memories. This way, even if they caught her and asked her, she wouldn't know anything. And, and could she pass a lie detector? I said, sure. So then I thought about it. The next few days I started thinking, what's going to happen now? Once I do it, what's he want to do? What's he going to do with me? Once he knows that I'm the guy that did it, what's to prevent the CIA guy from bumping me off because I'm the guy that went out there to do it. And if they got a hold of me or tortured me or whatever, interrogated me, what if I told on him? You know what I mean? Then, mm. then they would get him and bump him off or, or fire him or whatever. So all of a sudden I started getting, I started getting scared. I started thinking, what did I just open up here? So I'm thinking I got to get out of this thing. I thought about it. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I talked to my I don't know if it was the current wife or the ex-wife. I don't remember. But anyway, I thought I got to come up with a story. So now I came up with the story. It can't be done. I'm going to tell him it can't be done. So then I contacted the lawyer back. I said, Bruce, I said, you know, I've been thinking about it. 
and I, I think you need to contact your CIA buddy. Because I thought about it and I said, you know, in reality, it just can't be done. Hypnotism can't do that. Now I knew damn well it could be done. But I wasn't going to go out there and be part of some pawn in, in whatever game the CIA or Hades pulling or whatever, and then to be executed by them. So I, so I just used the old card, like a lot of the hypnotists who truly believe it can't be done. Mm. I said, no, I thought about it, and it's beyond what I can do. It can't be done. And, and so I never heard from the CIA guy again. But would, you you, gone out, would you have done it? That's, you? Im that's truly impossible, isn't it, Tom, for me to sit here and answer because the tr do you know what? Even if I would have done, I wouldn't ever admit that I would have done, which leaves the possibility open then to be offered such highly lucrative work in the future. <laughs> Make of that yeah. what you will. Um, but you may not have put your neck on the line there, and I can understand why, but you have put yourself in situations that could have proven lethal, which is, you know, oh, yeah. the book Kill the Hypnotist that y your wife, Suzanne's, uh, put together. I mean, he, the advertising blurb says it's a work of um, based on a true life story, but... I suspect reading the stuff that there's a lot more truth and reality in it than it, it's almost word for word what happened to me, you know, hey, when I was in Taiwan, number one, I was competing against this guy and you probably know who he is. Um, uh, Martin St. James. Oh, yeah, Martin's no longer with us, but he was one of the big Australian and he did get quite well, he got massive in England as well. Martin St. James. Yeah, well, yeah. I was competing with him. It was Martin St. James and me competing to, to, to influence Taiwan with hypnosis. Martin was, already worked, Martin was already doing stuff in Japan. He already was doing stage shows in Japan back then. So it was, I needed to beat Martin St. James to Taiwan because we knew his agent, and his agent in Taiwan was in the mob, in the mafia. His agent in Taiwan was a criminal, a gangster. Right. And I was being, uh, my agent was a guy named Xu uh, Ming, who also was a very scary guy. I mean, this guy, I don't know who he was tied up with, but uh, he's a guy that, you know, if he wanted to make me disappear, in, in Asia, they just make you disappear. No one ever finds your body again. Oh. I don't know if they, if they just dismember you and bury you, throw you out in the ocean or, or put lime on you and disintegrate your body, whatever. But it, it was a scary situation. So I'm competing against Martin St. James, knowing that Martin St. James is backed by the biggest gangster guy in Taiwan. I even went to lunch one day with, with Martin St. James's manager and Xu Ming and myself. So we're there and we're competing. You know, I did a TV show where I took the most famous lady back to a past life and Martin St. James was on a different channel the exact same time having someone hypnotized and putting a block, a, a cement block, and hitting it with a hammer, breaking the block. Now, you know you don't have to be hypnotized in order to do that, yeah. if you have the right material or whatever. But anyway, um, so in 1995, when I was there, uh, I was approached uh, by a, a group of people. They put me into a secret room. And these were the head of the Defense Department, the head of the police, the head of counterintelligence, uh, the head of technology. These were this was Taiwan's secret service, and they said we're at a standstill. This 
there was a big crime that occurred in 1993. A weapons procurement officer, um, Captain Yin, was murdered, was found dead. It involved 2.6 billion U.S. dollars. The purchase of defective battleships from France, a shipbuilding company um, in France, and and then the um, um, money laundered in South Africa and Switzerland. Mainland Chinese people paid off for German minesweepers. It was a huge weapons crime, way beyond understanding. It was the biggest crime in Taiwan and French history. So they asked me if I would work with them to hypnotize people of interest and prisoners, military prisoners, to get the truth out of them. I already knew how powerful hypnosis was, but I'm, I'm, no, I'm no secret agent. You know, I'm just a hypnotherapist guy and a stage guy, and I'm in Taiwan introducing the culture and lecturing at the Buddhist Association, the hospitals, the police academy about hypnosis. So I said, no, no, I, I don't want to be involved in it. So I walked away from it. But, and I, I got like these, I, I shivered a little bit, man. I was thinking, God damn, this shit's big, you know? It's okay if I cuss a little bit, okay? Yeah, it so, is cool. So, um, so then I get approached by my agent back in 1996. He sends me an email. I'm back home. And he says, the government needs your help. Will you come back? Will you work with them? And I was being paid a certain amount of money every week, 1500 bucks a week for five years of contract. So that agent had me doing a million things, and I was only getting the same amount of money. You know, my interpreter used to tease me how much work I do for so little pay. But I was signed to a contract, and I was doing something that people said couldn't be done, hypnotizing people through interpreters, doing world's record shows, doing TV. It was exciting. Kids were playing Tamu the Hypnotist in their school plays. I mean, you know, I'd have 100, 200 kids run up to me, Tamu, Tamu. I mean, it's like I felt what fame felt like, and it was pretty wild, man. So I thought about it and said, okay, I'm going to do it. They said the morality of the military has been shattered. The colonel is an honest guy. He's the scapegoat. He's been murdered. And, and there's a guy in prison accused of the murder. And so I, I went to Taiwan in January of 1997. So now I'm no longer going there to be on TV and to talk to news reporters, being in the newspapers. I'm being hidden, man. I'm being hidden away because I didn't want no one to know I was there. Because why not get rid of me? If I'm the guy that might help him solve the case, yeah. get rid of the hypnotist, kill the hypnotist. So I went there, and and right away I was um, put in a, in a military hotel. Outside my room were armed military guards with machine guns standing outside my door to protect me from getting bumped off, man. You know, and I was getting scared. I was wondering, what the hell am I doing here? What am I gonna? What am I gonna? Why am I doing this? You know. Plus, all the hypnotists I knew told me you can't hypnotize people against their will. You can't hypnotize military prisoners to get the truth out of them. I got. I was hearing so much from all these people, uh, but I don't listen to them. I don't care what they say. They can't do it. I know I can do it. And if I know I can do it, I'm gonna crack a code and I'm gonna do it. It's almost like it's take no prisoners. I'm gonna get the job done. And I don't care how hard I work, I'm going to get it done. So I created all these different methods that we were going to do to get into that subconscious and to get into the files to regress them back to the crime. Because ultimately what it was is a regression back to the three days 
1993, December 11th, 12th, 13th, to gather information. We're not going to have someone confess to murder under hypnosis. I want to get the evidence. I need to get the evidence. And I also taught the government, the heads of the police and military, how to interrogate, how to create non-invasive interrogation techniques while I have the guy regressed to 1993, because I didn't want to contaminate the answers. I didn't want to lead the subject. Think of all hypnosis as all leading suggestion anyway. Everything is leading suggestion. What, what about regression therapy? It's all leading. Go back to your past life. I've already implanted that you had a past life. You might have never had a past life, but I've already contaminated your memory. So I didn't want to do memory contamination. So I taught them how to ask questions just direct and literally, just like we talk about the subconscious, direct and literal communication. You talk about this in your book, the how to book a forensic hypnosis investigation, don't you? The actual sort of techniques so people watching and listening can head over to tomsilver.com and grab a copy of that book. Yeah, or go to killthehypnotist.com, please. Take the, check this book because the book isn't just about the crime. This book is about weird stuff that happened to me doing TV shows, behind the scene things that other hypnotists don't tell you happen because they want to paint a picture like they're so great and powerful that nothing ever goes wrong. I like to tell you about all the things that went wrong, man. And, and what, what you can learn from it. Yes, exactly. You can learn from it. You can learn from mistakes. I learned from my mistakes so I don't have to make the same mistakes again. Did I tell you one day I was doing an NBA halftime show in Sacramento and I was booed by 15,000 people in a 30,000 arena booing at me, booing, Faye, get off the court. I was being booed, man, by 15,000 people because the show went wrong. My mic, my mic stopped. The subjects walked off the court. Everyone's yelling at me and calling me fake and cussing at me and booing me, you know. And then, and and I, at the end of that show, I ran out of the arena. I went into the hotel room with my sound guy. I downed three Long Island iced teas, almost full alcohol, because I had to go back to Atlanta Hawks two days later to do an NBA show. And I, I wanted to quit and walk away. Instead, I created a new formula. I went back. My new method worked. I, I created I created fail-safe systems so that if something happened, I had backups. And then I wound up doing NBA shows for 14 years later. So anyway, so when I got to Taiwan in, in January, they wanted me to hypnotize the guy accused of the murder. The guy is spending life in prison. They've tortured him. They've tried everything, but they couldn't budge him. They couldn't budge this guy. He was a tough cookie, man. He was strong. No emotion from this guy. They showed me a video of him at the dead captain's funeral where the soldiers had him looking at his dead best friend in the coffin trying to get him to crack, and they couldn't crack him. But yet the methods that I use, I won't get into specific details. They're in the book. The methods that I use, because I use steps, I don't go to step B unless I get step A. So that's the whole key. If I can get here, then I can go there. Then I can go there. Then I can go there. And then I can go full-blown to what it's involved to get to the crime. But I cracked the guy under hypnosis. I had a snot dripping down his nose. He was crying. He, the, the government guys, it was all done in Mandarin Chinese. So don't forget what was going on was in Mandarin Chinese. I only knew what my interpreter was telling me he said. 
But all the government guys gathered all this information. Uh, I went back in July and I got a gold plate of honor. I went back in September of 99, where my agent now became my enemy and wanted to get me killed because we cut him out of the case. He was blackmailing the, the government for millions of dollars to get me back there. They put a life insurance policy on me from Lloyd's of London for a million dollars in case I got bumped off for 10 days. My ex-wife wanted to get a million dollars in case I got bumped off or executed or disappeared. And I went back and did the mission the third time. And we solved the case. We know exactly what occurred. Um, and it involved two presidents, one in Taiwan and one in France. It involved the defense minister of France who was found guilty, Dumas, of the crime. But the crime will never be completely solved because it was too big. Too many people are gonna would have to go down. But it was it was huge, man. So I learned how to hypnotize prisoners against their will. I created a human lie detector, finger of truth tied into the central nervous system. So their finger was in the air for five to ten hours at a time. And if they told the non-truth, what we call a lie, it would start doing this and create a spasm. It would overexcite the central nervous system. So I created a human lie detector, ma'am. Isn't that cool? Uh, it's cool. Yeah, I mean, and, and the bottom line is, I gotta go. I gotta get. I gotta plug this in in my other room. The battery's dying. Oh, the bottom. The bottom line is, listen to this. The bottom line is, I was awarded a gold plate of honor from the Taiwan Department of Defense. I have a gold plate of honor. Exactly. You don't get that for just anything. So viewers or listeners who think this might sound a bit far-fetched, you can go on TomSilver.com. You can go on KillTheHypnotist.com. You can see Tom. You can search Google as well. You can see he genuinely has been given this gold plate of honor by the Taiwan Department of Defense and the Minister of Defense in Taiwan. You don't get given things like that for doing a comedy stage hypnosis show or a normal hypnotherapy session. It, well, exactly. And, you know, this is the truth that I did it right there. That says it all. That's the gold plate. Yeah. You can see it even more clearly on killthehypnotist.com. Yeah. That, and, I, and I have it now. I turned down the money on my second mission and my ex-wife got really pissed off because I didn't want their money. I wanted to restore the morale of the military. I wanted to experiment and continue my experimentation on forensic hypnosis, criminal investigation. The only, the only criminal investigation that goes on is with witnesses. No one ever hypnotizes the accused. The accused has all kinds of information that if you can, if you can remove their resistance, then you can get information out that possibly they didn't remember or they did not want to uh, in, uh, divulge. Remember, influence, we influence the mind. Um, but again, I, I'm, that's the most, that thing I am so proud of because that, that proves that I did something. Who, yeah. what, government, what government's ever given a hypnotist a gold plate of honor? None. No. So, you know, so Jonathan, I've had a cool life. I get to be friends with you, with someone that understands the power of the mind and how an operative can operate someone's mind to do things that are being done every single day around the world that people have no idea are being done. Well, prime example, the irony of it is the general populace who, who, and, and the hypnotists that say it can't be done. Deep down, 
deep down at some unconscious level, they must know it can be done. Because deep down, they can't be that blind to not realize that, for example, people who join the military are through repetition of training, um, arguably brainwashed, hypnotized, conditioned, call it what you will, to a point where they will unquestionably obey their commanding officer and without any conscious thought or interference will kill on demand well yeah and that's why in all reality um military people are the most easiest to influence mm. they really are because they've learned to follow orders take instructions you know and 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 i found it so powerful i mean and what was so great about it i was either able to re erase their memory or put a blanket over their memory. So when they came out of hypnosis, some of them remembered something that was very meaningful in their life. I won't get into the details, but they sure did not know anything that would happen during that eight, eight to 10 hours of interrogation. One guy came in to see me. He was a, an active statistics professor, uh, active Taiwan procurement officer, uh, mathematician in the military. He came in, they brought him in to see me. These guys are being forced in to see me. They're not volunteers coming into a hypnotherapy office. The criminals came in handcuffed, shackled, and blindfolded, wearing military stripes on them. So people were walking in in shackles, man. Freaking in shackles. There was a time in the inter in the hypnosis room, which we, which is really the interrogation room, that I turned into a kind of a therapy room. There were security guards on each court, each part of the room, ready to grab the guy in case he grabbed me and, and broke my neck, snapped my neck. There were secret cameras hidden in tissue boxes. Like, like uh, I don't know if I have a tissue box here. There were secret cameras hidden everywhere. Microphones hidden everywhere. There was a surveillance room watching everything. The play-by-play -play action is what we were doing. I had generals bringing me fruit and thanking me you know, two and three, four-star generals, because we're gathering information they hadn't been able to get in years. It was a wonderful tool. I have to, as devil's advocate for the viewers and listeners, I have to ask you this question. If this is what you've done that you're prepared to talk about, there's got to be viewers and listeners thinking, if you can talk about this and the proofs there, the gold plate of honor, that they can go on Google, check out this crime, you were involved in helping solve it and all that. What the bloody hell has he been involved in that he's not telling us about? Now, I know you can't, even if you had been involved in something you couldn't tell us about, you, the oxymoron is you can't tell us. And if you turn around and say, no, you haven't involved in anything else, it's an oxymoron, it's an impossible question. I get that, but I know viewers and listeners have got to be thinking, if this is what he's talking about and letting us know has happened, and he's talked about in depth in Kill the Hypnotist, go to killthehypnotist.com, buy the book, um... And he teaches these kind of techniques and he's the how-to book of forensic hypnosis investigation. What the bloody hell is there that he's done that he isn't talking about? You know, you know what I thought you were going to say? If he's really done these things, isn't he afraid that he's talking about this stuff, that someone might come and bump him off or knock him off or kill him? That's I what think, I thought you were going to say. 
Do you know why I didn't ask that question? Because, you know, I got asked that question last year when the documentary came out, Extreme Danger, Extreme Aren't you a bit scared? I said, well, you know, we're doing a part two that goes even more in depth and mentions names and stuff. And they said, well, aren't you scared of getting knocked off? And I said, you know what? No, the reason why is most people don't want to have to accept the fact that they've perhaps been manipulated and brainwashed and controlled by outside influences for most of their life. So unfortunately, the sad fact is the majority of people, even if they watch the documentary, are not going to believe it. Cognitive dissonance is going to stop that. And the, the, the powers that be that use these things for nefarious means know the majority of people, even if they found out what was being used, aren't going to believe it. And therefore, you know what? I'm not really that much of a threat. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was talking today. I guarantee you a high percentage of the population that are listening are going to think that I'm full of bullshit, that it's just crap and a lie. You know, well, but that's because they don't understand how powerful the mind is. They don't understand how vast and deep it is and how it could be accessed by an outer source. Most people would not believe that, that I can hypnotize players against their will to get the truth out of them. Yeah, unfortunately, it breaks just a little bit. Okay. Well, okay, so what, what I was going to say is most people will not, not believe what we're saying is true. And yeah. and think about it. Think about it and create how afraid people would become being brainwashed, manipulating with their guinea pigs in a goddamn being told when they go on that thing and to be going around in circles. Most people don't realize that they, they, they're not operating their mind, but they're a slave to other people operating them. Yeah. And I think that's pretty scary for someone's ego. Yeah. I, I can't be controlled. I can't. Completely you know nail that? on the head. Keeps breaking up, unfortunately, but we are coming very close to the end. Uh, below this video, below the audio podcast version as well, which is where most people will uh, get it, will be various links, including, of course, TomSilver.com, where you can go and grab, uh, if you're into hypnotherapy, stage hypnosis, or anything of that kind, or you want help for yourself, go and book online sessions with Tom, live training events around the world, and, of course, get his wonderful range of training DVDs on a personal tip, uh, get the hypno music that he puts out with himself and that was formulated with Armand McGill. I picked it up in um, 2004 in London and I've used it in every session since. I use it in the background for the recordings that I give out to my therapy clients as their backup um, session recording. It stimulates the brainwave patterns Uh, your obligatory beta, alpha, theta, delta, and takes them into, I know it's going to sound daft me saying it takes them into the deep trance state when I regularly saying that states are irrelevant and it's nonsense and it doesn't apply, but it's it's weird sounding enough that whether it does that or not is irrelevant. It sounds weird. It sounds hypnotic that it buys into their belief system and at the end of the day it helps you get better results i've found well, well there you go it's available my book 
Unfortunately, we really are breaking up and the picture started to break up for some reason. I think the internet connection's gone a little bit bad. However, if you go to Tom Silver... Excellent. While Tom's moving, I'll just say if you go to TomSilver.com, you can get his books, DVDs, live courses, uh, online mentoring, all that kind of stuff. If you go to KillTheHypnotist.com, that is where you will find the book of the same name. And also, if you happen to have come across this because of the keywords being controversial and you're a television researcher or a media researcher, Contact Tom via killthehypnotist.com so you can talk with him and his wife in relation to they have got a format there for a television miniseries or a film type project all based on things that people think sound like they're not possible but actually are firmly rooted in reality. The reality of this man, Tom Silver's life. The pictures suddenly got better. I wonder if the sound has. Yeah, hello. I'm near the the little mobile phone. So I'm on phone line. I have phone line internet, man. Ah. Like, like yeah, but but. So it is losing it still a bit. So fortunately, we got we got a good two hours and a bit. We've covered loads of areas with more honesty than, as I said right earlier on. There's only a handful, and by a handful, I mean less. I, less than I could count on two hands of people in the world who I know would either have the honesty, balls, knowledge, or experience to either A, want to, or B, be able to talk about the things that we have done in the past two hours. And for that, thank you so much, Tom. Uh, The viewers and listeners, um, well, there's so much for them to go over and learn and uh, to motivate them to go to TomSilver.com, buy the DVDs, go on the courses, and of course, also go on YouTube, type in Tom Silver, go to Tom's channel. There's so much free material there as well that is awesome. And of course, don't forget, killthehypnotist.com. Thank you so much for being my guest, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. Many of us left. The, the people that really wanted to be part of your show, to be on your show. For us, I mean, we are kindred spirits, you and I, the true realities of hypnosis or the science of influencing the mind. Thank you so much for letting me be part of this show and podcast. Thank you. Thank you folks, I hope you heard. Thank you so much. Guys and girls, tune in next week for another edition of Hypnosis Week at hypnosisweek.com. Bye for now.